Bible says mankind's first home was a garden paradise called Eden. Interpreting the section of Genesis which describes the location of Eden. A passage in the Old Testament states that Eden was watered by a stream which rose out of the garden and branched out into four rivers. The Tigris, Euphrates, Pishon, and Gion. Where is the fourth river mentioned in Genesis? explodes with life and color. If we take Genesis as a mixture of revelation and allegory, then it is likely the author had a real place in mind when he described Eden. You might have been familiar with the Sumerian legend of the semi-divine king named Gilgamesh. In search of immortality, Gilgamesh travels to the land of Dilmun. There, Gilgamesh learns that he must pursue the flower of immortality, which is found at the bottom of the sea. By eating the flower, Gilgamesh will become immortal. The story doesn't end happily. A serpent appears, steals, steals the flower, flower, and eats it. Man's old adversary once again robs him of everlasting life. The biblical similarities are obvious. It would be tragic to lose the Garden of Eden a second time. God cast Adam and Eve from the Garden and gave mankind a legacy of earthly toil. There is another legacy, a longing to rediscover the place where it all began. information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanation, but not necessarily the only ones to the mysteries we will examine. Okay, the demons squeal in sheer delight. It's you they spy so plump. But though the groove is hard to beat, Closing in to seal your doom. 
you is that you 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 discovered the garden of eden yes in tanzania right and i have to know more well gosh that was back in 2014 i think i started uh, looking into that i used the bible in the hebrew form uh, to um, look for the various clues about where the four rivers uh, went and what river supplied that amount of water and i had to um, use my knowledge of the uh, the Earth's diameter having changed, it's now about 25% bigger diameter than it was then. So in other words, uh, it enlarged by a third of its diameter due to an asteroid impact. The big flood was caused by an asteroid that impacted on the east coast of India when it was still extended down into the Indian Ocean. And the impact shoved all of India up into China to form the Himalayas mountain range. That's why we have uh, seashells and stuff on top of the Himalayas. You can see the map of the, the mud map of the uh, Indian Ocean. You can see where Sri Lanka, the tip of, of India, was located before the impact. And once I put the earth back together again and then started tracing the rivers, I found that two of the rivers were broken, uh, the Euphrates and the Tigris. All that we know of them today is the tail end of where they were, not where they started. And so uh, Tigers came through a mountain range uh, that is now formed after the impact, but through a mountain range over in uh, Iraq, I think it was. And the rest of that, if you were to plot it today, would be out into the uh, Indian Ocean. Yeah, it's. Uh, I have a, a website where I, I show pictures of all of this if you want to tell your listeners to look there. Uh, Absolutely. It's standeo.com, right? Yes, and once you get there, you'll see a YouTube sign at the top right of the page, and you'll see uh, in blue letters, show images. And that's where I put things on there uh, in slide form. Some I, I never take off, like the Garden of Eden. Uh, I, I, I leave that there all the time. And um, you can see pictures of the Garden of Eden if you click uh, slide um, 32. And that'll take you to the actual discovery, you know, uh, using what the script is to send me as far as a new topography and bathymetry map of the world. And then started a long search in the library there at West Australia University to get maps and military maps. And those days we didn't have internet, so it was a long, hard slog. In 1989, I published uh, my findings where I traced the Garden of Eden as far back as the Danical Plains in uh, northeast uh, Africa. And I found the four rivers joined there. But uh, I couldn't find the exact start of the river that uh, made them. And so a few years passed, and in 2014, I picked up the search again. And uh, with now with Internet and Google Earth and the Scripps Institute data, I was able to see that there's this huge river that comes out of Great East African Rift out of Africa down to make the four rivers, that uh, the Danical Plain, where it split. And so by tracing it mile by mile, you know, and I, I did that down close on the map up to the starting point. I came to a place called the Ngoro uh, Plateau, 
and that's a plateau that the uh, southern kind of end of it is a great huge crater 10 miles in diameter of a collapsed volcano. Come to find out, I looked, I thought, well, I've never heard of this place. Uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere, it looks like. So I looked it up, and it's called Africa's Garden of Eden. And um, there there it was. It was in later in 2018, as a friend of mine uh, financed a, a, an expedition for us to go over there and actually film and then talk to the, the, the Totoga tribe historian and to the Maasai uh, historian to get the, you know, the information from them that God had come down into the Ngoro crater and it created man there and then left and went back up in the sky. Are you serious? Yeah. God. I tell you if, you, if your hair is not standing up on your neck now, you're not listening. I'm listening. I'm listening. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I read the, the Bible and I also read the Coptic scriptures, you know, the ones that they found in, in Nag Hammadi. And, and I, I, I'm fascinated with that as well. And I understand that you've been to that area of the world. Can you tell me anything about that? Well, my trip over to the Middle East uh, was to Israel, and um, gosh, it's been about 1989, or yeah, 88, 89, somewhere in there. Um, and I was going to visit a dig uh, that a friend of mine, which is Vendel, V E N D Y L, Vendel Jones, they, they nicknamed it Indy Jones, but uh, later a movie was made about uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, he means that was the real Indiana Jones. That's who Indiana Jones was based on. Anyway, uh, he was a family friend there in Arlington, and he gave me a map and some instructions on how to get to a, a dig. He started where they'd found the uh, an underground hiding place for the priests of Zadok, who uh, were hiding there during the uh, the Roman occupation. And huh. uh, that's what I, w I went to see, and... Uh, I did find it. Uh, I had to swing on a rope from the edge of the, the cave to get into it, and uh, he left a rope kind of hidden off there and tied off with a rock, and so I swung in and uh, dug uh, uh, in the middle of the, uh, the the top cave, moved the sand out of the way at uh, between 12 and 1 o'clock, which was when the light shone on where you're supposed to dig in the sand, and I moved the sand back and forth and found a, a metal plate about oh, two foot square, maybe two by three, something like that. And uh, I lifted it up, and it was the access to the lower cave where he made the discovery. No way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, my friend and I, he'd uh, come with me there. We, uh, Malcolm, he's from uh, Sydney, and um, hadn't brought torches or you know, flashlights or anything. We didn't uh, think we'd find a place to start with. And so anyway, we uh, lit some matches that we had with us as we climbed down the ladder and uh, we were being sparing with the matches, so he, t he went down first and found a ledge. He says, there's a ledge here, watch your step, and he walked along out of the way, and I came down behind him in the dark, feeling for that ledge to stand on because the other side of it was a bunch of empty space. Didn't know how deep it was, but uh, anyway, we, I got down there, and just as I hit the bottom ledge, something kind of warm landed hard on my right shoulder. It was an animal of some sort, right? I thought it might have been a spider, so I knocked it off with my hand, uh, gloved hand, and it, uh, it it didn't fly, and I heard it go down, 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 bang, and hit down below. So I realized I didn't want to come off the ledge too, too much and uh, walk toward Malcolm, and he says, look, I found uh, where the, the ledge joins a, a pathway down to the lower level here, so come join me. I did, and uh, we walked down. We saw the entrance to the, uh, the hidden chamber that the priests of Zadok had been holding their ceremonies in, and I think he had a squat bend down to get in had to be in a, 
you know, a lower position. You couldn't stand up and go into it. And so I went in first and moved the metal sheet covering the entrance to it to, to the right a bit. And I, I felt something warm on top of my hat. It was a living thing. And, you know, of course I took the hat off. It turned out to be a bat. Did it, did it, did no. Well, that's better than a spider anyways. Uh, so I looked into the room now, uh, you know, on my knees there, because you, you couldn't stand up and get into it. But once you were in, you could stand up. And there were two piles of rocks, black rocks and white rocks, or kind of river rolls from the Jordan River. They were smooth but colored. And off to the right, you could see where there was the soot on the top of the cave, which had stones, big round stones. Uh, when I say big, maybe 8 to 12 inches in diameter on average. And it looked like diamonds was in, in, in between all of them sparkling. It turned out to be gypsum that had leached out of the water from the Jordan, but it was flickering firelight. Or, you know, it just sparkled, you know, and uh, there was soot up there on one side there across from the stones, and that's where the priest of Zadok uh, did some sort of ritual. But uh, later, uh, Jonesy, he, he found uh, right where I, I was there at the doorway, he found they dug down about 600 pounds of incense that they had used in the temple ceremonies that they would preserved it there in the ground so that they could have a new uh, ceremony when the temple was rebuilt. So I went to that area and, and uh, researched there and uh, in another two caves up north of there. We visited the uh, Qumran cave and uh, met some nice people down to, at the Wadi Hakipad. There was a, a Moshav or a, uh, what do you call it, uh, kibbutz down there. So we made friends and uh, then left. And I didn't go back again until 2018 when we went to the Garden of Eden. After I proved it and talked about it, a, a, a man who was, uh, I think he was Nigerian or Uganda, I'm trying to remember, he, he was a pastor, a Christian pastor, called me and said he'd just been in a meeting with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and that uh, he heard about the Garden of Eden being in uh, Tanzania. And he wanted to tell me that they already knew that. They just hadn't made it public because they were thinking that's where Israel's going to go in the time of persecution again to this 100-square-mile area. So it, it's all kind of interwoven, as you can see, and uh, it, it was exciting. Goodness. <laughs> I mean, what, what drove you to, to do these things? I mean, was it your religious beliefs, or was it some adventurous kind of call to action? Well, you know, I was a Christian at the time, uh, and I discovered it and uh, even before that, but... Um, I, I guess it, this is something important to look at, uh, and you know, the further into the research I got, the more important it became. And I can remember sitting here with uh, Holly, my wife, and if I discovered where this river went, or you know, uh, the hot stone that surrounded the Garden of Eden, you know, I'd say, look what I found. And of course, you know, your hair stands on end, and you know, a few hours, maybe a couple of days later, you'd find something else from the Genesis account. It just kind of fueled itself. I mean. I, I wasn't on a mission. I was just curious and wanted to find out about it. And of course, the more I found out about it, the more important it became. Well, now you said you said that you, when you used to be a Christian, have you converted? No, no, no. Uh, I was raised in a Presbyterian Christian home, but uh, you know, like all young people, you kind of rebel for a while and go in a different direction. It wasn't until I had a near-death experience that things started to change in my mind in '69, and later when I left the project uh, where we were working with. Uh, Edward Teller's people of anti-gravity machines. I, I was in the desert uh, on the run from several intelligence agencies who didn't want me to tell everybody what I knew. And I uh, figured I was going to die you know, one night sitting there in front of the headlights of my car. And I thought, well, you know, I said, well, Lord, if you're really there listening, uh, 
I think I might be meeting you soon, so I'd like to be on good terms. And that's when I first made my, you know, conscious decision to do his will. And uh, so from that time forward, things uh, happened rather, you know, uh, coincidentally, I guess you could say. Um, what was my objective? It was just kind of following the flow that was going through my life. I mean, it's, that's strange how when you accept uh, these, these religious precepts into your into your reality, the religious precepts start start giving, I don't know, almost direction to the flow of, of that reality. And I've, I've always thought that people should study that on a more, because, you know, scientists, people who are uh, skeptics would say, well, it's just coincidence, you know, miracles don't exist. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. I, I, think, I think that there's definitely something happening on a scale and in a realm that we don't fully understand. Yeah, it's like a parallel reality or you know, parallel universe or you know, just all kinds of ways to describe it. But we're told in the scriptures that this is not reality in the life we live here. Uh, the real life is in the kingdom where you know, God is, the creator. It's like we're a virtual reality created in a scenario that he built. Uh, so it really does speak of a, of a virtual reality, though, and someone in control of it. Well, so, so uh, I have to ask, because this is a show about ufology primarily. Um, you said that you uh, were in the FBI, or, or that you were, uh, I'm sorry, uh, you worked for the FBI, you were contracted by the FBI, and that you actually worked with uh, anti-gravetics. Yeah, when I was in Dallas, just uh, 1970, 71, I was researching uh, in my private time. I was a computer program systems analyst, etc., for a large uh, corporation there. But at home, I was working on a way to use electricity to generate an artificial gravitational field. And then uh, uh, I was also working on how to make a craft that would use plasma drive, the ionized air, to make the circular craft work. And um, my house had been broken into, uh, I think it was in late 70, uh, while I was at work. And uh, they'd broken into the lab, and uh, they, they had some things like TVs and bits and pieces stretched out on the driveway. My neighbors saw them and called me and ran them off. Uh, in the next year, in early 71, I think it was, um, in the company where I worked, we had 3,000 employees and a cafeteria downstairs to service them at different times of the day. And I had gone down, because my office was on the executive row up the top, I'd gone down to that floor and to, to have a cup of coffee because there was no one there. It was, you know, I, I didn't have to follow the, the timeline. And uh, so I had this cup of coffee and sat down, and this lunchroom was huge, uh, and one chair and a table. And this man came along. Um, I'd recognized him from being from one of the insurance companies that our corporation owned. And he was an actuary, you know, mathematician-type guy. And uh, he came and sat down. His name was Ted Owanski. And he sat down across from me and says, uh, you know, mind if I sit here? I said, no, I guess not. And he started talking about, you know, life, death, what are you doing, what's your hobby? And I told him, well, I've been playing with this thing about making, you know, anti-gravity. And he, he seemed reasonably interested. And that was it. And he says, uh, look, I want you to ring a friend of mine and tell him what you're doing. And uh, he says, his name's Dr. Maxfield. I says, oh, yeah, okay. He gave me his number, and I put it in my pocket, went upstairs, and I thought, oh, this guy's, he's, what does he want? You know, I, I don't know him from anything, and so I forgot about it. A month went by, and I still continued my research and testing, and, and uh, when I 
was in the office about a month later. I decided to go down and have a cup of coffee by myself down the stairs when no one would be eating there. And darn it, this guy didn't come in at the same time and come and sit in front of me and said, you haven't rung my friend Dr. Maxwell yet. He's expecting you this afternoon at 3 o'clock. So I said, all right, I'll, I will do it this time. And uh, so I did. And I went over to Dr. Maxwell's office. It's a radiation research clinic and a uh, small building. And I parked and went up, you know, to the door. Uh, it wasn't a glass door or anything like that. It was like a solid door. And I opened it up and looked down this long hallway, and I could see a light in the middle of the hallway coming from the sunlight in the window. But other than that, I couldn't see anybody there. And I called out, and no one answered. So, you know, I started to think something was amiss anyway. So I walked very carefully, looking behind me and to my side to other closed doors along the way to that light in the hallway. And it was the sunlight at the receptionist's desk, and she was away from it. So I thought, well, um, maybe I'm in the wrong place. And I started to go out, and the door burst open down the end of the hall, which is like a, like a surgery door, you know. Uh, and out came this big, tall guy in cowboy boots and a cigar. It turned out to be Dr. Jim Maxfield, who was quite a character in himself. But he says, uh, can I help you? And I said, well, I was looking for Dr. Maxfield. He said, well, that's me. He says, uh, uh, oh, yeah, you're, you're Ted's boy, aren't you? I said, yeah. And he said, well, uh, come on into my office. And we went into this small little office, uh, you know, probably no bigger than 10 by 10 or so. And he sat behind the desk and put his boots up and, and uh, says, tell me what you've been doing, boy. And I said, well, uh, first of all, don't call me fucking boy. Exactly. What do you mean? And he said, well, you know, your research at home. So I started kind of fumbling for words because I could see up on the wall. This guy had a Ph.D. and this and that. And I had pictures of him and. And Dr. Edward Teller, you know, under, you know, on a submarine, and I thought, boy, this is a, you know, a big guy. I can't talk to him like an idiot. I thought, well, let's see, how do I say anti-gravity? They probably don't believe in that. I said, well, I've been working about magnetic fields and, and, and uh, gravitational fields, how they could be related. He says, well, look, but don't, don't, uh, you know, don't do that to me. He says, I know what you're doing. You're working on anti-gravity. We have already discovered it and are making craft in a project down in Australia. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, how would you like to join us? I'm, I'm cutting to the chase on the whole conversation, but that was, gee, that sounded like a great idea, but I'd have to move my family down there and sell my house and, you know, shares and stuff. He says, all right, I'm going to call uh, uh, Bob Gray, I think his name was, the Australian consul over San Francisco. We're going to arrange for you to be, um, get, do your medical stuff, uh, to immigrate to Australia. And... Uh, you know, a month later, all this started to fall into place. Uh, the lady came out. They gave me X-rays and live X-rays and cleared everything for me to go down as an electronics engineer, which is not my major. But anyway, I said okay. He said this. That's because the immigration department needs electrical engineers down there. I said okay. And they took me, uh, sent me to Australia. My control agent down there was Captain Sir John Williams of Adelaide Steamship and Salvage, which he was knighted by the Queen for some work he did in discovering a lot of lost gold over New Zealand during World War II. But, um, yeah, that's, that was the beginning of the project, and uh, there were, it's, to this day, it's still very classified, but uh, they had already built anti-gravity craft. I was shown photographs of one of our assembly areas in a, uh, probably in, in uh, Saudi Arabia, now I think about it, but it was in a hot place inside of a, you know, one of these large metal, corrugated metal buildings, I mean, large enough to hold probably, oh, let's see, one, two, three, this, probably about 120 feet across uh, where I was looking in the picture. And they would show me how the uh, field coils were assembled for a 30-foot diameter craft, uh, anti-gravity craft, and uh, how they were wrapped and, um, 
you know, how they were controlled. Did they ever go through the history of the craft? No, no. And, and I, uh, um, here's another strange thing. Back when in Dallas, when I was working for that company, when Ted Owalski guy approached me, uh, I had a, a man that I'd hired to, to work for me. He was older than me, but he was a, a former captain of a strategic air command bomber, and uh, Colonel Nice was his name. And that we were talking in some of our off moments there when we weren't doing anything about. Um, you know, flying saucers and this kind of stuff. And he says, you know, I'm going to tell you a, a, a really weird story. He says, uh, when I was uh, commanding the SAC aircraft, he said, I had a navigator. And uh, he was bright fellow, he said. And uh, one day the navigator came to me and, and handed me an envelope that was sealed, and, you know, so that you could tell if it had been violated and opened, et cetera. He said, George, I'm going to give you this. I want you to keep this in case something happens to me. You know, I, I want to be able to prove that I had this idea and it worked and uh, you know for patent purposes and he said oh okay and uh, a few weeks went by uh, George said uh, you know uh, I can't remember why now but he says my, my navigator was transferred out of my uh, my command and I never heard from him again I said did you keep the envelope he said oh yeah he told me it was in the envelope I, I haven't opened it with my parents in Florida he said but he told how he built a, a, a thing in his, uh, at home uh, which had three chipboard um, circles, like a, like a birthday cake, uh, three layers to it, and uh, each layer smaller. And around the rim of each of these layers were uh, iron, soft iron rods about uh, two or three inches tall, sticking through the middle of a washer, uh, which was split. And there was a coil around the washer, and then there was a coil in the opposite direction around each of these uh, center poles. And he said uh, he had... Um, the driving circuit over to his left there on his desk and it was going to produce high voltages so he had a, a knife blade thing that you open and close you know manually to break the circuit so he closed the circuit when he was ready to test it and nothing happened and he was a, a bit disappointed until he realized wait a minute that thing is starting to lift off of the floor continued to lift continued to lift kept on going he thought well we better stop this because that's getting you know up toward the ceiling and um he took a broom uh, handle, a wooden broom handle, and moved it underneath the, the uh, well, it's not a craft, but underneath the, the, the pods there. And he could feel that the air felt mushy, like resisting, which is gravity, right? right. And he, he said, well, gee whiz, I'm going to turn off the knife switch and let it settle back down. So he went over to the circuit on the left on his desk, and he opened the knife blades, and he said, instead of breaking the circuit, a large arc came from the circuit, up to the knife blades and it wouldn't stop. I couldn't stop it. And he said, I, I took the broom handle and I swung hard at the field underneath the thing to try to break that field somehow. He said, with that, there was a tremendous bloody arc, he said, in the flash, and the thing fell to the ground. His circuit was burned. The transfer pole outside the house was blown. And they know that because the next day the, the power company came out and said, did you notice anything unusual in your house here? He said, no, I don't know what happened. But anyway, he told uh, Colonel Dice the story, and, and then Colonel Dice told me. And it was very close uh, to what I was doing in the lab to make these uh, counter-toroidal coils interact to produce an effect on gravity. And, uh, you know, when I, I thought about that and then the 30-foot diameter craft I was seeing, I realized that the craft they showed me was one of those split ring washers and one rod down the middle. It was two normal coils. Uh, one was a vertical, you know, normal circular coil like you see in a vanograph or something. And around it 
was this um, this donut, a hollow donut of a probably a moo metal, with a flat coil wrapped around that in a uh, kind of a you know halo type structure, and those two were locked together. It was the same thing in a big craft. It's one of those rods and split ring washers that the navigator used, and so I've often nicknamed that the navigator's coil craft. But anyway. Well, so, so you're saying that it was a toroidal craft, like it was it was, uh, it was shaped like a donut. No, the main drive was, but there was a, a normal circular hull over the top of that and underneath it. But the drive function was uh, these two coils. So keeping this in mind, is it possible then that aliens aren't involved with any of this? Uh, it would be possible, but no. Uh, this, this happened, this whole project uh, that uh, Teller uh, inducted me into was the American uh, wing of a multinational project from England, uh, from West Germany, from New Zealand, Australia. I think Canada may have been involved in some degree. There are a number of countries um, that were involved in this. After World War II ended, uh, the Allied powers got together and decided that they couldn't risk another global war because the nuclear power had been released. And they didn't want to have, you know, total destruction of civilization. So they were looking at alternatives, how they could. Uh, they looked at the League of Nations and the United Nations and realized that negotiating peace between all the nations would never work, wouldn't hold uh, because of the differing religions and opinions. So they, they said, well, look at we've just defeated Hitler, who was a dictator. We know that dictatorships don't work because resistance comes up like the the French resistance, and it'll destroy. A, a, a dictatorship and how do you control a dictator so then they went to alternative free and alternative free was okay if we can't get people to negotiate peace and we can't get a dictatorship that will work how do we get people to want to have a new world order where there is one leadership and they were going to hold technology back from the public until they could develop uh, enough advanced technology to fool the people of Earth into thinking that aliens had come to help them. Well, in 1950, that all changed. In fact, probably 1947 it did at Roswell, but real uh, fallen ones, I call them, but they were what they, they called aliens, met with our people, met with uh, Truman, Eisenhower, and others. And they said, look, if you'll help us build underground bases, underwater bases, uh, we will help you uh, to make this new world order. And so it was made to order then. We didn't have to do it. Uh, these people would help us. And uh, that was the early 50s, and uh, things progressed there on a global scale.